Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Pagosa Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, Dr. Charles Stanley is finally stepping down as pastor of First Baptist Church in Atlanta at age 88, but don't expect him to retire. I'll explain why later in the program. And we have an update on the situation at Taylor University after the firing of a popular professor there. Questions have arisen regarding whether the college followed appropriate process in the firing of Jim Spiegel. And we have the latest in our Generous Living series, the profile of an NFL quarterback, Kirk Cousins, and his approach to both saving and giving. We begin today with news that the COVID crisis has not had a negative impact on giving. In fact, a new study says it may have motivated even greater giving. Yeah, giving to congregations appears to be up and not down, a new survey shows. It's a survey from the State of the Plate, uh, which finds that close to two-thirds, 64% to be precise, of churches across the country reported in August that their giving was either up 22% or at least steady, about 42%. And according to Brian Kluth, who's a former pastor and now the spokesperson for the National Association of Evangelicals Financial Health Initiative, he said that this is encouraging news for churches across America. These new findings, he said, shows that most churches and their families are figuring out ways to survive and even thrive in the midst of all the challenges that the pandemic has thrown their way. Another interesting finding uh, from the survey was the number of churches that are now back to meeting face-to-face. Yeah, that was a bit of a surprise to me as well. The The vast majority of respondents, 87%, uh, said that their congregations are currently meeting in person for worship. But they also said that a, more than half of them had attendance that was less than pre-pandemic times, uh, though 6% said that they had actually seen an increase in attendance. A survey released in July by LifeWay Research found that 71% of Protestant churches met for in-person services in mid-July. So it looks like churches, at least, are getting back to some version of the new normal. Yeah, that's right, though this new normal does include precautions, and even this study says so. For example, social distancing and face masks and that sort of thing. But I think what we're discovering, Natasha, is that folks want to worship together, that it's a part of who we are, it's a part of who we are as a church, that we need to be together. And um, I think that's also maybe what what's motivating some of the uh, strong feelings about, you know, churches like John MacArthur's church out in California, who were uh, meeting in defiance of uh, California law. So uh, we are getting back to normal, but it's definitely going to be a new normal. <laughs> Indeed. Well, in other church-related news, Dr. Charles Stanley, the influential pastor at First Baptist Church in Atlanta, is stepping down after more than 50 years. Yeah, he issued a pre-recorded message last Sunday in which he said, in part, as much as I love being your pastor, I know in my heart that this season has come to an end. Though Stanley, who's 
turning 88 later this month. He won't be retiring completely. No, he won't. Uh, Rather, he said that he'll take the title of Pastor Emeritus from First Baptist Atlanta and focus on In Touch Ministries, which is the radio and TV ministry that he founded back in 1977 to share his teaching with the broader world, a world beyond the local church. Associate Pastor Anthony George will become the senior pastor of the church, according to a succession plan that was put in place actually a few years ago, back in 2017. Now, just a little bit of history here. Uh, Charles Stanley came to First Baptist in 1969. The church now has more than 12 thousand members and estimates that millions of people around the world watch the services online. And Natasha, I'll just add this. I was uh, from Atlanta and um, knew the Stanleys pretty well when I was growing up. I did not attend their church, but um, Dr. Stanley's daughter, Becky Stanley, was a good friend of mine um, in college. In fact, was my sister's college roommate. So I have watched the Stanleys up close and personal for many, many years. There's been just a a lot of great work that they've done. long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson used to say. So I really congratulate uh, Dr. Stanley for um, a long career coming to a successful conclusion. And I also want to add that, you know, he was, uh, in addition to the In Touch Ministries, active well beyond his church. Uh, He was elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention in both 1984 and 1985, and he played a pivotal role in the so-called conservative resurgence within that denomination. We have news of another celebrity pastor, ousted pastor and founder James McDonald and Harvest Bible Chapel have reached an undisclosed agreement. Warren, can you tell us more about this development? Well, I can tell you a little bit, but unfortunately, it's still kind of a secret. Uh, The agreement comes after months of arbitration involving James McDonald's termination last year and who was going to own the ministry that was James McDonald's radio and television ministry called Walk in the Word. Um, I can tell you that that agreement was settled on August 14th, which was more than a month ago, but it wasn't made public until just this week. And it was only made public because a reference to it was made in court documents filed by James McDonald's lawyer in another lawsuit in which James McDonald is embroiled. So we really haven't seen the agreement itself. So why is this significant? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, when the church entered into negotiations with James McDonald, it promised its members and the public that it would be completely transparent in those dealings. And that obviously has not happened. I mean, that agreement was made and it was signed, sealed, and delivered, and not a single announcement was made to the public. Both parties agreed to a non disclosure agreement that keeps the details of the settlement confidential. I'm guessing this is one of the reasons why you aren't a big fan of non-disclosure agreements. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think non-disclosure agreements are not good things. They are often used, as in this case, to shield wrongdoers from having their deeds fully known to the public. And they also keep victims, or in this case, donors, from knowing the truth about why and how they've been victimized, or in the case of donors, how their money has been used. An audit of the church, Harvest Bible Chapel, concluded in February of this year, showed that in 2018, the last year for which we have data, James McDonald was paid more than $1 million. 
Well, Warren, we have to take a break, but when we return, an update on the situation at Taylor University and later in the program, our generous living profile featuring an NFL quarterback who hasn't let money go to his head. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and we'll be back after the break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, an update on a story that we first brought to you last week, the story of the firing of a well-known and well-loved college professor at Taylor University. Yeah, Taylor University fired its longtime faculty member, Jim Spiegel, for, among other things, not adhering to Taylor's Life Together Covenant, which is a statement that all faculty members must agree to. Now, though, comes news that, ironically, Taylor itself uh, may have violated the terms of the Life Together Covenant when it fired Spiegel. Well, Warren, I thought that the key reason Taylor gave for firing Spiegel was his refusal to remove uh, the YouTube video he posted there, uh, a humorous video called Little Hitler. Uh, That makes it sound like he was fired for insubordination, for refusing uh, not to do something that his boss asked. Well, you're right, Natasha. That is what Taylor wants us to believe, but there's a problem with that interpretation. First, Spiegel had performed that satirical song at both student and faculty events for years, and there had never been a problem with it. In fact, the song was, according to Jim Spiegel, an artistic effort to highlight the Christian doctrine of original sin. So there was nothing immoral or anti-biblical about the song, and nothing prevented Spiegel from posting the video on his own personal YouTube site. However, Taylor officials said that the school received a formal harassment complaint from another faculty member because of the song. They did, but again, there's a problem with that as well. According to Spiegel and others familiar with Taylor's Life Together Covenant, the first step in resolving such a conflict would be for that person to have a one-on-one meeting with Jim Spiegel, the person who allegedly committed this wrong. By going to the administration first, This anonymous faculty member likely violated the terms himself or herself of the Life Together Covenant, and by accepting the complaint rather than encouraging the faculty member to meet with Spiegel directly, the college itself likely violated the terms of the covenant. In fact, Spiegel told Ministry Watch, by honoring what Spiegel called an illicit complaint, the administrators themselves have failed to comply with their own process. So you think there's more to Spiegel's firing than just the video itself? 
Well, Spiegel's firing has reopened ideological fissures on Taylor's campus that have been there for years. A couple of years ago, in fact, last year, Taylor made national news when it invited Vice President Mike Pence, a fellow Indianan, to deliver the school's commencement address. Some students and faculty objected to the invitation, and some students actually walked out of Vice President Pence's address, and others refused to shake Pence's hand when they received their diplomas on stage. The controversy became so heated that the president of the college was ultimately forced to resign. Now, during that controversy, Spiegel aligned himself and sometimes led those who had a more conservative position, not only on Pence, but also on sexuality and other issues that were debated on campus. One of Spiegel's efforts was the creation of a newsletter called the Excalibur, and that newsletter promoted conservative views on abortion, sexuality, and all kinds of other issues. The newsletter sometimes made Spiegel a thorn in the side of the administration. Lots of people close to the situation think that Taylor's administration is using this video as an excuse to get rid of a faculty member whose views they just don't like. So what's next? Well, Spiegel told me that uh, he was still negotiating his severance package with Taylor, and he also told me that he would be willing to come back to Taylor if Taylor would simply apologize. Well, Warren, let's move on in our conversation and talk about a group that used to be called Evangelicals for Social Action. It appears that they're not so evangelical anymore. Yeah, Evangelicals for Social Action is dropping the word evangelical from its name, uh, citing increased confusion and political connotations associated with the word evangelical. Uh, uh, By the way, the new organization is going to be called Christians for Social Action. It's a 47-year-old uh, organization. So it's been around a long time. Officials at the newly named Christians for Social Action say that the name change is what they're calling an act of hospitality. It's a way to um, welcome folks who might not be comfortable with that term evangelical into the organization. Executive Director Nikki Toyama Zeto told Christianity Today, in some ways it reflects a change in our audience for the way they're calling themselves. Uh, She said that some of our audience is still evangelical, but some identify as post-evangelical, or, and this is a phrase I'd never heard before, evangelical adjacent. She said that the name change doesn't reflect a change in mission, but rather the removal of a distraction that detracts from the work. That work has a long history. Well, it does. In fact, as I said, the group was started 47 years ago uh, by Ron Sider. Uh, Ron Sider um, uh, had just written a book called Christians in an Age of Hunger that became a bestseller, ultimately sold more than 400,000 copies. Now, uh, it's been called a liberal or progressive group over the years, but I know Ron Sider a little bit, Natasha. I've interviewed him a couple of years ago, and I can tell you that... Um, that compared to the progressive political views that are out there, it's kind of hard to tell where Ron Sider is a liberal. He's pro-life, strongly pro-life. He's pro-traditional marriage. Uh, but he is also opposed to the death penalty in favor of Christians doing more for racial justice. And those views in the eyes of some are considered liberal. Warren, let's take a look at one more story before we go to break. Ministry Watch did a deep dive into the makeup of the leader's 
at the largest Christian ministries in the country, and you found that they were overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly white. Yeah, our reporter, Christina Darnell, whose name you've often heard on the end of our podcast each week, uh, really did a great job, spent a couple of weeks looking at the leadership of the 50 largest U.S. ministries, uh, the ministries as uh, ranked as we ranked them in our Ministry Watch database, just to try to find out how diverse the senior leaders are. And she found that of those 50 nonprofits, seven are led by minority males, five are led by females, only two are led by uh, black men. One of those uh, is African-American and the other is African from Africa itself. Uh, Three are led by Asian men, two by Hispanic Americans. The largest Christian nonprofit in the U.S., though, World Vision, is led by a minority male. None of the female CEOs are women of color. 50 is a pretty small sample size compared to the thousands of Christian nonprofits throughout the country, but these numbers are still eye-opening. Yeah, they are. They suggest that we still have a long way to go if we want our ministries and our churches to reflect the diversity of the world in which we live. But I should also add that these top 50 Christian ministries actually fare slightly better than the top leadership when compared to, say, for example, the Fortune 500 companies. Christina looked at the Fortune 500 companies and found that only five of 500 companies are led by black men. That's 1%. And 16 are led by Asian men. That's just 3%. Uh, While there are no comparable statistics for Hispanic CEOs in Fortune 500 companies, a 2017 analysis from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says that while 7 17% of the labor force are Hispanic Latino. They make up only about 5% of executive positions. So of the 500 largest companies in America, only 7.4% are led by women. And among the 50 largest Christian ministries, five are led by women, and that's 10%. So again, we're actually doing a little better. Fascinating. And I should add that these facts are just a few of this very data-rich story. Yeah, they are. We've just got a lot of fun factoids in that story. Christina Darnell, as I said, did a great job with it. And it reflects one of our goals here at Ministry Watch, which is to use our database of the 600 largest Christian ministries in the country to really help donors and ministry leaders understand what's going on in the ministry world, what best practices are, and uh, how they might could change to conform more to some of those best practices. You can read her story by going to ministrywatch.com. Now, Warren, it seems a little bit early to me, especially um, because I'm still in denial that summer's over, uh, of doing a Christmas or year-end story. But in fact, we have one this week, and it relates to the Salvation Army. What's going on there? Yeah, the Salvation Army is kicking off its annual Christmas Red Kettle campaign more than two months early this year in hopes of meeting uh, what it's calling an increased need for assistance that's happening during the coronavirus pandemic. Traditionally, um, the Red Kettle campaign start around Thanksgiving, but bell ringers are going to deploy earlier. They they usually post themselves outside of stores and beside uh, red kettles where passersby can donate to those in need at usually Christmas time. 
So this is different. And I understand that starting early is not the only difference this year. Yeah. In 2020, this year, ringers will be trained about social distancing and they'll be provided with face masks. That's new because of coronavirus. And a lot of the kettles won't just be kettles, but they will be sort of high tech devices where you can scan a QR code and make a donation because a lot of us just aren't carrying cash anymore. Warren, a lot of these Salvation Army kettles are outside of stores and in crowded street corners that are now not so crowded because of COVID. Is that having an impact on the Salvation Army? Yeah, it really is. Uh, The kettles last year were in about 30,000 different locations scattered all over the country. Uh, But the Salvation Army said it was struggling to get to that number because of all the retail closures this year. I should also add that even without COVID, the kettle drive has been in decline. Last year, uh, the Salvation Army raised $126 million through the kettle campaign. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but it's actually $15 million less than 2018 and nearly $20 million less than 2017. Well, we're going to have to take another break. But when we return, the latest in our Generous Living series, the story of Minnesota Vikings quarterback Kirk Cousins. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, a new study finds kids who attend Christian private schools in the United States are more likely to marry and stay married and less likely to have a child out of wedlock than students who attend public schools. Yeah, the study was done by the Institute of Family Studies and the American Enterprise Institute, and it was released just this week. Of those private school students, the students who attended Protestant schools were more than twice as likely to be in an intact marriage later in life than a student who attended a public school. The same Protestant school attendees were 60% less likely to get a divorce than public school attendees. Students who attend religious schooling also report higher rates of marriage. Well, finally today, the latest in our Generous Living series, where a lot of people we've featured have been wonderful people, but mostly individuals who are not celebrities. But this week, though, we 
feature someone who our listeners, or at least our football fan listeners, may have heard about. Yeah, his name is Kirk Cousins. He's the starting quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. So, yeah, I guess it is uh, possible that some of our listeners uh, may have heard of him. What they may not know is that he's the son of a well-known pastor and author, Don Cousins, and that he and his wife have been committed uh, to a very non-NFL lifestyle for years. What do you mean by non-NFL? Well, for one thing, Cousins understands that NFL doesn't just stand for National Football League. Uh, There's an old saying in the league that says it also means not for long. Most NFL careers are short, less than four years on average. So when Cousins was drafted to the Washington Redskins in 2012 as a backup quarterback, he got a $2.5 million four-year rookie contract. Now, that's a lot of money for a 23-year-old, but Cousins knew that nothing was guaranteed beyond that, and he also knew that he wanted to be a generous giver. So rather than going out and buying a fancy car, he bought his grandmother's 12-year-old conversion van, and he and his wife Julie continued to live in the apartment that they had shared since they were married. Their goals were to save as much as they could and to give away as much as they could and to save in such a way that they would be able to continue giving generously throughout their lives, even if their NFL career uh, really didn't go anywhere. And things have worked out pretty well for Kirk and Julie Cousins. Yeah, they have. Uh, his NFL career, at, you know, I think it would be an understatement to say actually did go somewhere. Uh, By the time his rookie contract had expired, he had been promoted from backup quarterback to starting quarterback. He did really well there, got re-signed to a one-year $20 million contract. Then the Redskins, now called the Washington Football Club, signed him to a $24 million contract. As I said, though, he's now playing with the Minnesota Vikings in the middle of a three-year $84 million contract. So we don't have to worry that all of his giving and saving is going to put him in a poorhouse. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's easy to look at that situation and say, well, you know, it's easy for you to be generous. I'm struggling to pay my rent or to save enough money for a decent retirement or maybe to pay my kids tuition. But And Cousins acknowledges that, but he also has to face some challenges that other people don't, such as getting inundated for requests for money and facing charges of hypocrisy when he says no to certain causes uh, when people can Google his name and find out exactly how much he makes, which is, of course, what we did in reporting this story. So I think his story, which is certainly different from mine and probably from the stories of most of our listeners, it does have some lessons for us. For example, do we have a plan for our giving? Um, How do you make giving decisions? Uh, What do you want to teach your kids about money? Kirk Cousins has struggled with some of these issues, and I love that he's been transparent about that struggle and that we can learn ourselves from that struggle. You can find Christina Darnell's story and others in this Generous Living series by going to ministrywatch.com and searching for Generous Living. Now, Warren, before we go, I want to let people know that you have a new book out. 
Yeah, I do. It's called Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. It's published by Ministry Watch. Uh, I don't keep a dime of the proceeds for that money. All the money goes to Ministry Watch. I've been working on the book uh, for more than 10 years, and I'm really pleased about how it came out. Now, we're offering this book as our thank you for a gift of any amount to Ministry Watch during the month of September. If you'd like to know more about the book or to make a donation, you can go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donation button at the top of the page. You know, I also want to let everybody know that next Friday, September 25th, I'll be doing a free online webinar based on the book. Uh, Check the daily Ministry Watch emails for details about how you can sign up. Uh, This is going to be, by the way, a really interactive session. We're limiting the attendance to 100 people, and I'll be taking questions from everyone who signs up. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast, this will be a chance for us to take our relationship to the next level, so to speak, and I really hope you'll join me. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Christina Darnell, Maddie Townsend, Emily Miller, and Warren Smith. I'm Natasha Smith in Pagosa Springs. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. May God bless you.